the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. Certainly, with the LGBT plus communities, uh, the mental health conversation has been going on for a long time. It's well documented that you know that you know if you're queer growing up in whatever culture or however you identify the likelihood is that you're going to have experienced some degree of rejection bullying humiliation and ultimately shame i have never this is the truth i was thinking about this recently i have never either professionally or personally met someone who identifies as queer and i'm going to say queer broadly covering the entire communities that hasn't struggled at some level Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Matt Kane Meets on Virgin Radio Pride. That was Owen O'Kane. He's a psychotherapist and a Sunday Times best-selling author of the books Ten to Zen, Ten Times Happier, and the brand new How to Be Your Own Therapist. In his writing and his motivational speaking, Owen often draws on his own experience of growing up gay in Northern Ireland at the height of the Troubles, what he calls a backdrop of bombs, bullets and bullying. I'll be speaking to him right after this. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. This is Matt Kane on Matt Kane Meets. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Owen O'Kane. Owen, welcome. Thanks, Matt. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Good, I'm good. very well. There's lots I want to talk to you about. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I want to go straight in with the heavy one, mental health, because yeah. you have 25 years experience in mental health. You're a former NHS mental health clinical lead and what I really want to know from an expert is we read all these articles about the high levels of mental health in the LGBTQ plus community Mm. would you call this a crisis I think it's always been I mean I think there's a lot more there's a lot more conversations around it now everyone's talking about mental health and I think at one level that's a good thing but I also think there's a danger it's going the other way. I think the whole mental health hashtag is being at times overused and maybe even at times manipulated because there's a huge difference between mental well-being and mental ill health. They're two very, very different things. And I think it's a phrase that's been thrown around a lot at the moment. You know, if you wake up and you have a bad day or you're just feeling a bit rubbish, it doesn't mean that you have a mental health disorder yeah, or a mental health issue. Yeah. So I think the whole conversation's got a little bit confused and I think it's a term that's just been thrown around a lot and I think there's a danger with that that it just almost gets diluted and minimised funny you should say that I was watching an episode of First Dates the other day and a woman on a date with a man she got a very complicated dessert she didn't know how to eat and she kept saying this dessert is giving me anxiety it's giving me anxiety it's making my anxiety terrible and um, you know we've got to a point where these words are being I think they've been been thrown around a lot and I think that that worries me a bit. I mean, look, I've been talking about this for for years and certainly with the LGBT plus communities, the the mental health conversation has been going on for a long time. It's well documented, you know, that, you know, if you're queer growing up in whatever culture or however you identify, the likelihood is that you're going to have experienced some degree of rejection, bullying, humiliation and ultimately shame. That's yes. the core narrative. Yes. I have never, this is the truth, I was thinking about this recently, I have never either professionally or personally 
met someone who identifies as queer, and I'm going to say queer broadly, yeah. covering the entire communities, that hasn't struggled at some level. That's Never. interesting. So do you think it is a crisis? Do you think these oh, statistics that say we have higher levels of they, mental health? They, they are, because, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is most people from our communities don't really grow up with a sense of inclusion or they don't grow up feeling that they're enough. There's always kind of an underlying apologetic state or worrying that they're going to be found out or worrying that they're going to be rejected or worrying that they're going to be a disgrace or a shame to their family. There, I mean, there are different narratives for different people, but I think broadly speaking, most people I encounter, I guess really you crash land into adulthood with a sense of not being enough or being less than. And if you carry that sense of not being enough or less than, then your mental health is going to suffer. Well, and funnily enough, literally, I was just looking at my next question. I was going to say, do you think when we experience this shame, this feeling of not being good enough yeah. in childhood, it makes us ill-equipped to deal with what life throws us as adults, whether that's rejection, failure, just the stresses of modern jobs and careers and relationships? It's, it's a double full thing, really. I mean, shame's an interesting one because shame we don't talk about a lot. And my argument is that when you don't talk about shame, then it becomes more problematic. And the two areas that tends to impact most are mood and anxiety. You know, they're the two areas where shame tends to play out. So the mood thing is if someone's walking around generally not feeling good enough or feeling a sense of being... But for me, you know, I was Catholic, Irish Catholic and gay and all that stuff. It wasn't so much about not being good enough, it was about being bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a different context. Something wrong with you. Something wrong with me or that I was a bad person or that, you know, I was going to disappoint my family or, you know, it was all of that narrative for me. But of course, when you carry that around, then you you start to develop this sense of worry about, God, what, what does this mean? Am I a bad person? Am I going to disappoint them? So the worry then creeps in and then, of course, the mood creeps in because that's, that's quite heavy to carry around. And if you're carrying that sort of content and it's heavy, then ultimately your mood's going to take a dip and you're going to begin to struggle. So it's kind of almost like, you know, we're hardwired to struggle. So what I'd, um, I completely agree Um what I would love to know from you is, so you've written all these amazing books that we're going to talk about later, which aren't specifically aimed at the LGBTQ yeah. plus community, but everybody. I'd, I mean, I'd love to know what kind of um, tools and activities do you like to suggest to people, advise to people for them to improve their sense of self-worth, their self-image, their self-esteem? And are there any that uh, you would uh, advise specifically to the queer community? Are there any different approaches that you would take? Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, as a therapist, when when you're working with anyone from LGBT plus backgrounds, part part of the deal is I will always self-disclose. So therapists generally don't talk much yeah. about their own life. We tend not to. It's kind of the rules of therapy. But interestingly, the research when you're working with a gay client is that it's actually healthier to reveal your own sexuality. Is that because of um, all of us growing up having to keep our dirty little secret hidden from the world? I think it's the affinity. I mean, I, look, I've been in therapy. You know, as a therapist, you've got to be in therapy. It's it's part yeah. of the deal. You've got to have therapy. And I've had therapists over the years who have said to me, well, have you ever thought about getting help with your sexuality? Or have you ever thought of looking at ways of changing? So, I mean, it wasn't exactly conversion therapy, but I've had therapists suggest that reviewing my sexuality might be a good idea. What does that involve, reviewing your sexuality? Well, you know, questioning how true is it? Are you sure you're gay? 
you know, could it oh, be a really? phase you're going through? So it's a kind of very subtle form of conversion therapy. But I've had that probably twice with therapists over the years who have hinted that changing might be a good idea. So, you know, as a, as a gay therapist, when you're with a client, obviously what you want to do is you want to minimise shaming straight away. So when someone's in a room with you, if you've declared early on and work, okay, look, I get it, I'm also a gay therapist, it means then the people are more likely to talk about stuff. So if somebody has been out having a good time or, you know, they've been out cruising or something and they don't feel good about it, I'm not going to be shocked by anything that I've heard. I've heard it a million times, but they may not be willing to disclose that if they're not sure about who you are or what your background is. So disclosure with gay therapist is a, and with a gay client is a really common practice and actually it's a useful thing to do. Well, it's interesting. As you were speaking, I was just thinking, I had five years of psychotherapy a while ago now. And when a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist, I asked her to recommend somebody. She said, I can't tell you anything about these people. And I said, I want a gay one. Mm. I said, I want a gay one because if I'm talking about going cruising or or anything, you know, I, I want to feel that I can bring it all up without having to, without being worried about being judged. And she found me a therapist. She said he was a good fit. Okay, there you go. I could tell (laughs) that he was gay, but I don't think he ever told me. Shall I tell you something really bizarre? My first therapist was a nun. (gasps) So my, so which, I mean... A psychotherapist, a trained psychotherapist. Trained nun and a trained psychotherapist. So I was coming, I mean, this is... Talk about an Irish cliche. So I was in a monastery for three years. I want to. I know. I know about that. I want to ask you all about it. I'm going to digress everywhere, but (laughs) I've got to tell you this. So I was in a monastery for three years, and then when I left, I thought I've got to come out. You know, and I, a mate of mine said, "Look, why don't you go and talk to your therapist?" And when I got there, it was a convent, and I thought, "Oh, this is a bit weird. I must be in the wrong building. Why am I in a convent?" And when I got there, it was a nun. And I was going to, to therapy because I was coming out and I was thinking, oh God, I better talk to somebody. And I thought, how am I going to tell a nun? So did I'm you gay? hold back then? Did it well, stop at the you begin- from... at the beginning I was all about, I mean, she, she was brilliant actually. And we, we were friends for years after therapy had ended. I mean, she was amazing. Did, so she didn't judge or shame oh, you my, then? We, we're talking about everything really. And she um, she said, why are you here? And I was a bit reluctant. And I said, well, I just kind of work out, want to work out a few things. And she said, oh, how's your family life? How are things? Everything was fine. I was, oh, I was great. I'm okay. Yeah, no, no, that's not so bad. And she did this incredible thing. And she said, oh, you keep telling me that you're fine and you're okay. And she said, but interestingly, you look sad. And the minute she said it, I completely disintegrated. You know, when you kind of feel yourself almost internally falling apart. And she hit the nail on the head. And of course, from that moment, the floodgates opened I couldn't really hold back and she said what's really brought you here she said I feel like you're holding back something you're not saying so did so she didn't say to you say, you, you can't gay? be gay no, or you she, shouldn't no, be gay oh my god none of that so well I, she was a good therapist oh but god. not a very good nun so she was yeah so she well exactly she probably would have been struck off but so I, I remember saying to her oh god there's this thing and it's massive and I don't even know I mean at that time I thought this was going to be like the worst thing in the world and I said there's this terrible thing and I don't even know how I'm ever going to come out or say this to someone and I said it and she was like is that it and I said, yeah, that's it. And she went, okay. And what is it that's difficult about that? 
And then that was it from that moment. What is it? Can I just say, though, that's great that she said that, but what is it that's difficult about that? It's like, where do you start? She's obviously not um, had any personal experience in that area. Absolutely. But the interesting thing was I knew, though, that it didn't matter to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And interestingly, in the way she phrased it, I just kind of thought, whatever, it's difficult for me. I knew it didn't matter. Oh, and this is brilliant. There's so much I want to ask you, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few minutes. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and today I am meeting psychotherapist and best-selling author Owen O'Kane. So, Owen, just before the break, we started talking generally. We started talking about your life. I'd love to know more now. If we could go back to the beginning, you were born and brought up in Belfast, mm-hmm. Northern Ireland, at the height of the Troubles, as I said in the introduction. That's the 1970s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Could you set the scene for us what was i mean even before we get into the gay stuff what was that like to live through yeah i mean think for me it was a bit like think of billy elliott yeah but you know for me it was i was playing piano and like show tunes and stuff but it was kind of like a billy elliott very working class part of belfast but then throw in bombs and bullets on top so it was a real kind of, I mean, the whole thing was fear driven. I mean, you know what it's like to be a, a queer kid. It's terrifying. You're on high alert. Yeah, you're on all high the alert time. the whole time. But I was also on high alert because I was surrounded. I grew up in the heart of Belfast. It was a place called Ardoin. And it was a real hotspot for the kind of the violence and the troubles, really. So that was going on most of my formative years. So you were on high alert for the riots, the bombs, the bullets. My mum's brother was killed during the troubles. So, you know, there was you know, heartache and tragedy that was part part of that as well. So it was it was tricky. But I didn't realise until I left how high alert the entire thing was because I was just, you know, I was there, you're living through it. You get on with it. And then I came to London and literally when I got to London I could feel my shoulders drop. So when you're going you're literally living in a war zone, was there no awareness that as a community, you were going through a communal trauma that you would need to heal from afterwards? Or was it just survival? You have to hunker down and get on with it and it carry It is on. a bit of a survival thing. Here's the really interesting thing is when the ceasefires happened in Northern Ireland, psychiatric admissions increased by 50%. Oh, really? And that's fascinating. So, so when the troubles and the violence ended, that's when the issues started to emerge. So I think when you live in a, an environment that's trauma-filled... When you're in it, you just get on with it and it just becomes very normal. A bomb would go off. I, I did a TED talk recently called Bombs, Bullets. I know, I've seen it. It was great. And, and I talked about a bomb going off one day. You know, my brother and I get caught up in this explosion. Miraculously, we weren't seriously hurt and we walked away and went to the shop and went home after the bomb. So now, so I mean, now that, as you said in the first part of our interview, we're so much better at talking about mental health, we're so much more knowledgeable about the impact it can have on us, Mm. these traumas. Um, But in those days, I mean, if that had happened now, you and your brother would have had counselling. Oh my God, mental health wasn't mentioned. I mean, it was just a, honestly, it it was normal. There was nothing. When you were there... And you were living through it. I mean, it, was, it wasn't even a consideration that you might need help or support or that there was anything abnormal about what was happening. That was, that was everyday life. And on top of all that, that yeah. everybody else in Northern Ireland had to deal with at the time, you knew deep down, as you described it earlier, that there was something, you felt like there was something wrong with you because you knew you were attracted to men. You knew it was bad, it was wrong. I'd worked it out and I was Catholic as well. So that, you know, the, the whole religion thing in Ireland was quite complicated. So it was all 
about being a good person and all of that stuff. Well, so it's I, about identity as well, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And, you know, being Catholic and, but, you know, from a religious family where, you know, you had to go to church and all of that stuff. I knew I was different. And other kids at school, I mean, kids are the best psychologists. They work out you're different. So, you know, I didn't have language to, to know I was gay, but I knew I was different and the other kids were picking it up. And interestingly, there were a group of us who like got together, four friends of, at school, and they called us the gay team. Now, ironically, we all turned out, you know, we all turned out to be gay anyway, so they got it right. But for, you know, every day at secondary school, I can remember when we would walk down a corridor, and this happened probably two, three dozen times a day, if we walked down a corridor, they would sing the music to the A team. And that went on for years, just every single day. And it was relentless. And of course, it was real low tolerance back then. You know, they, the kids had worked out that there were a few gay kids around and they really did give us all a, a rough time. It's interesting, isn't it? I've, I mean, that, what you're describing is exactly the same as what I went through. And um, when people talk about... Um, it's interesting what you were saying about mental health earlier. It's, we're much better at dealing with bullying now, but some people talk about bullying when people have occasionally called them a name. Yeah. When you were growing up gay in the 80s, it was... It was just the constant, consistent barrage mm. with no let-up, literally all day, every day. Oh, it didn't stop. You, I mean, you it... woke up and you knew it would be happening all day. Yeah. And Yeah, I mean, I got so used to it, it just became the norm after a while. I mean, and it, you know, I, I guess coming to London was my breakthrough, really. When I, got out, when I got out of Northern Ireland and decided to get away, suddenly I was in London and no one cared. Yeah, yeah, and I can yeah. remember. I can remember the first time I went to GAY on a Friday night. Do you remember the old camp attack years ago? No, I do. I mean, <laughs> we were probably there probably at the same time, sw- Owen. swinging around on <laughs> Friday night. And I can remember the first time going there when I moved to London. I, I met a guy I was working with, and he said, "Oh, come along to this really good night out." It was um, it was this incredible night out, and I can remember the first time going there and being absolutely mesmerised that there were all of these gay people around me. You know, there were like yeah, thousands of people there. But I also can remember just being like almost shocked that nobody cared. Well, yeah, it wasn't a concern. Nobody was bothered. Because it was so universal, the condemnation of who we were, that it wouldn't have occurred to us when we were growing up that, and also pre internet, it yeah. wouldn't have, and there was no representation in the mainstream media. It wouldn't have occurred to us that these places existed, that you could be gay and happy. No, exactly. It just wouldn't have occurred to us. I don't know if you remember from the, the TED talk. I told a story in this TED talk about walking down a road one day and these four kids come up. And they spit yeah. all, like all at one yes. time. They spit in my face, and it went on for like what felt a couple of minutes. And I couldn't see in front of me. Yeah, I genuinely couldn't see. I had so much spit. And they walked away and they laughed. And one of them said queer. And uh, this woman com- comes over to me afterwards, and she gives me a tissue. And I thought she was going to be kind, you know, by giving me the tissue. And then she said, "Wipe that off your face quickly before anyone sees you." That's so, like totally reinforcing yeah. the idea that yeah. who you are has got yeah. to be hidden away. Of course it is. And even the fact that they had done this, it was like, no, 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 you better clean that up quickly. So, so you became responsible yeah, for covering up the shame. Fu- yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know. And you, you said in the TED Talk, you, um, you talked about how the piano and playing the piano mm. um, kind of saved you, you know, but you also talk about how your family preferred trying to steer you towards boxing lessons. To well, make, it, it to, was actually a neighbour who'd said to my to my mum one day, my mum was, I mean, she was great. She's not around anymore. Um, she died quite young, but she, um, my mum was great. But I remember a neighbour said to her one day, oh, why, why don't you get Owen to take up boxing? 
you know, and it was like, oh, well, why would I do that? So it might make them more like the other kids, you know, so it's like... It it's was your all, fault for exactly. not being like the other and kids. my brothers, I had three brothers, and they were, you know, one of them's a professional footballer, you know, one of them, you know, is a builder, you know, so they do all different things, and they're all very kind of typical masculine guys. So, I mean, it was just like, and there was me, you know, so it was, it was just a real... It's difficult when, you, when you've got siblings who you've got an absolute point of comparison. Yeah. Um, it's even harder on you, isn't it? I absolutely... Yeah, yeah. Um, remember that. But, so, did you ever come across any positive representations of... Because, obviously, Belfast has a thriving gay scene now. You didn't see any kind of gay pride parade or anything like well, that. Here's the fact... Do you know the first gay pride now? I, Christ, this is telling you how old I am. I think it must have been about... 25 years ago there was a gay pride just as I was coming out and there were probably about 50 people at it in the centre of town and they had one float and I can remember seeing gay I was in town that then I can remember watching gay pride going through town and I hid in this alleyway and I watched it from like a, a side street so that nobody would spot me watching gay pride and if you see Pride in Bel, I don't know if you've been to Belfast Pride, but it's it's huge. It's a really good event. Is it? I've heard about it. I've not enormous. Been. You know, I think they had like fifty thousand people or something at it last year. So from when I left, like a yeah. float of fifty yeah. people and me hiding in the street, to now, you know, all these people, it's incredible. Can I? I'm going to ask you a question. You may not want to answer it because it may be too oh basic and simplistic <laughs> and reductive. Um, if you had to say in your professional opinion now, looking back, which had the more profound impact on your psyche growing up in a war zone or growing up knowing you were gay knowing it would incite universal oh, condemnation I've never been asked that before it's a great question um, definitely sexuality stuff oh really 100% yeah the war the war zone stuff was a walk in the park and you were all going through it together I suppose yeah because that was you know you kind of knew what was going on with that there was a predictability to that and you knew that it wasn't personal you know, you knew you were in a situation that was threatening and it was difficult and it was all about conflict and difference, whereas sexuality stuff was personal. Well, also, just you describing when you came to London, I was brought up Catholic in the north of England, well, working yeah, class north. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. know you were a Catholic oh, boy. Oh, big time. I mean, wow. Catholic schools, I was on the altar, all the rest well, of I it. I was an altar boy as well. Yeah, same here. So I totally right. get everything you're wow. saying. But for me, part of who we were... We were Catholic and we were from the North. We weren't from London. Yeah. So just the idea of um, escaping and finding your people in London represented an act of disloyalty. Yeah, yeah. And um, saying you liked it and you were happier there would have been dis disloyal to my family. And who we were was Catholic. And I didn't see how I could be Catholic and... Yeah. And yeah, how do you align the two together? How do I? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's no. a real struggle. All that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, my when my mum died, the day of her funeral, one of the priests said to my brother, because um, I was there with my partner, naturally at her funeral. And one of the priests said to my brother, "Can you make sure that a one doesn't come up to receive communion <gasps> the day of my mother's funeral?" And would you have gone? No, because I, that didn't matter to me at that stage. You know, my, my spirituality, I wouldn't describe myself as Catholic. It's much broader. Same here. I wouldn't go. I believe, I, I believe in something bigger, but I don't believe I need to be part of a church. But um, I wouldn't have gone. But the fact that I was told not to, was just like... Owen, I'm gasping, but we need <laughs> to stop for a little break. We'll be back in a few minutes. Matt Cain meets Virgin Radio Pride. 
You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. I am Matt Kane, and today I am meeting Owen O'Kane. And Owen, you were just telling us about your experiences growing up. And I would love to know, you also hinted in the first part of our interview how you fought against your sexuality. Mm. So when you... Um, were coming of age, you were in your late teens, you mentioned that you went into a monastery. Um, was all this, studying to become a priest, was all this part of a kind of your offensive to suppress your sexuality? I mean, when I look back on it now, probably partly true. I mean, I, look, I, I still sort of, the, the work I wanted to do in my teens, you know, I often, you know, my, my drive was about, I think, helping people. I think I've always been driven by that. You know, I believe you know a lot of people struggle, and I've always been motivated by reducing human suffering in some way. And I I saw again into monastery as a way of doing that. They often say gays, um, queer people can be people pleasers. Mm. We think there's something wrong with us, so we want to make up for it in some way. It's an interesting one. I mean, I've explored all of that in my own therapy, and for me, it wasn't too much about compensating. To be honest, I didn't feel I needed to please people or I needed to prove myself for me it was about I think I understood human suffering yeah, and yeah. I knew that it didn't feel good so I think part of me thought actually well if I can do something that reduces that for someone else then that's a useful thing to do so I really worked that out in my own therapy it wasn't necessarily a compensatory pleasing or to make myself feel better I think it was about I know what suffering feels yeah, like yeah. and I know it can feel pretty rubbish so why not try to do something it makes that easier but of course you know look older and wiser now was going into a monastery a safer option you know probably to some degree it, it was safe I wasn't going to have to come out no one was going to ask me any questions at all nobody was going to expect you would have no, any sexuality yeah, exactly but of course then three years down the road in the monastery I thought can't do this. Before we get to three years down the road, I read somewhere when I was reading your previous interviews that you went on a pilgrimage to Lourdes. Yes. And whilst you were there, um, you tried to, tried on the download, to heal yourself <laughs> or get healed from your yeah, sexuality. You know, we knew how that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> get a refund. Um, what no, happened then? What happened was, so I, have you ever been? No. no so I everybody, say, when I was growing up, everybody would come back with holy water, but it, I never actually Oh, we went. used to get blessed by it. My mum yeah. used to have bottles and we'd go out the door. We used to have it sprinkled all over us and <laughs> sprinkled all around the house and all sorts of stuff. But um, So I went, and I, I again, because some people go there and people have been healed and stuff, so I don't want to kind of knock anyone's faith because I think it's really important that some people get hope in that but for me anyway I went and what you do is the, the Virgin Mary allegedly appeared there and they have water which she is meant to have blessed the water so basically you go into like it's like a mini swimming pool and you get immersed in the water and they ask you before you to go in to think about what you want you know what would you, what's your intention so I was there as a volunteer with people who were ill and I thought well I'm here I may as well get healed and cured of the gay thing because I hadn't come out <laughs> so you're queuing up with this thing and you go in and um, you're waiting to be immersed in the water and I go in and you sit in this little chair and I don't know where, why the guys were hidden but out of nowhere these two beautiful French guys come out muscle tops <laughs> huge legs beautiful both of them are absolutely gorgeous and I can remember as they were dipping me into water all I could see was both of their arms <laughs> And I was like obsessionally staring at them both. 
about being blessed in the water. And I can remember it all then happened really quickly. The next minute I'm under the water and then they bring you out of the water again and you're done. And I can remember coming out thinking, if I'm looking at guys... Whilst being healed. ...getting dipped in the water, (laughs) this ain't going to happen. But you know, here's the interesting thing. It probably, ironically, it was the beginning of healing for me because I did think, actually... There's nothing to be healed here. I mean, it's this is it's crazy, really. To think. So how did you? So once you'd felt that, how did you extricate yourself from that situation? How did you start exercising those negative feelings about I your sexuality? I can remember part of me was insightful enough to know that this wasn't a choice. I didn't wake up one day and think, God, you know something? I fancy being gay. You know, I, who would have done? You know, I just didn't. I didn't wake up with that notion that I'll be gay. Let's see how that works out. So part of me knew that actually this was this is very normal for me. I always had that felt sense that there's nothing wrong with me. This is a normal part of my humanity. And part of me always knew that. And I think even that day, you know, been dipped in the water in Lourdes, part of me knew actually this is okay. You know, but it was hard to unlearn all of the, yeah. the kind of the negative criticism. You know, it's like when you receive a lot of muck in your life, you know, it sticks yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you've got to learn to do then, you've got to say, okay, I've got to learn how to unpick this. Well, and also it's a long process, isn't it? You talked earlier about um, going to your first, moving to London, going to your first gay club, all of that. And and we were saying that when you grow up with shame, you're often ill-equipped to deal with mm. the challenges of everyday life, modern life. Actually, when you grow up with that shame about who you are, we're often ill-equipped to deal with finding our community and finding gay people. I know so many gay men in particular who um, go a bit berserk and don't know how to handle it when they get... And in fact, we've had a few on this show who've talked about it. It's, It's too much for them to process and handle. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I think that's the thing. I mean, everyone's common with a story, aren't they? Do you know, and I think that that's the thing about... And we see this playing out in the gay community all the time. You know, we're all there. We're all trying to fit in, we're all trying to belong, we're all trying to find our space, but actually we're all broken and struggling as well. And I think really, I, I, you know, I guess I think that's what unites us though, isn't it? I think we all know that there's a brokenness and a, yeah. a struggle within all of us and that's what unifies us. And I kind of think we should do more of that, you know, because, you know, it, it sounds cliche, but we have to stick together because most of us have had a pretty rough time. Yeah you know, at some level, and I think rather than be divided. I was in a bar once on holiday, in Sitchies, in fact, and it was like a bear bar. I was in this bar and someone said to me, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm ordering a drink. And he said, but you're not a bear. Should you not be in your own yeah. bar? And I can remember that really bothered me. And I thought, I don't have to be have a beard or be a bear to drink in a bar. And I said, why do we do this to each other? Finding your tribe is Finding so complicated tribe. and yeah. confusing when... Um, there's all these things going on. Yeah. Um, also, you know, you told us that your first therapist was a nun. Mm. So I'm assuming because you worked through these feelings and now you're a happy gay man and you help other people, that psychotherapy was part... You moved on to a different one after the nun and, and it was part of your process of getting out of that situation. It, it, it was part of it, but I think, it, you know, the... The, the biggest part of it is the stuff we mentioned earlier about the whole shame stuff. You know, it's like, you, you, I mean, you, you get to that point where you start to, you really have to start liking who you are. Yeah. You know, and that, that sounds really basic and simplistic. But I think most people internally, 
even outside of sexuality, give themselves a really tough time. You know, that internal critic, that internal narrative. And the one relationship that we all have that's a permanent relationship throughout life is the one with ourselves. You know, regardless of what goes on in our personal lives, the solid relationship we have is the one with ourselves. And I think I learned pretty early in my 20s that, you know, there's a period I didn't like myself. Not that I didn't like me, but I didn't like who I was. Yeah, and I, I was the same. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't that I didn't like me. I didn't like who I was. Yeah. And I had to really work on that. And then I had to think, but I can't change who I am. So then suddenly the coin dropped. Well, if I can't change who I am, how about getting to like that? and getting to understand that part of me better. And I guess that it was no more complicated than that for me, the working out actually. It's just part of being human. It's part of who I am. And then meeting other people and you know, uh, you know, I'm very lucky I've got good friends in my life and then I, I meet other queer people and they're great and they're incredible. And I think, well, I've got no problem with them. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. why, you know, if I've got no problem with them, why would I have a problem with myself so it really is that I mean you really have to learn I think gay people one of the things that we have as a strength is you really do have to become quite militant mm. and take a stand and say actually do you know all of that stuff I was told or all of those experiences I had I'm going to stand up and say actually no I don't believe you that isn't true I don't accept that so I think there is a real strength in a lot of queer people where they find that inner strength to say no 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 I'm not going to listen to that Oh, it always strikes me when somebody is, I'm obviously quite visibly presenting, quite company feminine, and people often assume men like me are soft and actually quite the opposite yeah. because we've had to develop that survival, yeah. that fighting spirit. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was talking about this to someone recently, actually, this whole notion about masculinity and one of the papers asked me to do a commentary piece on this young guy coming out and I was talking about masculinity and stuff and I think this is the one thing that a lot of queer people do, particularly men in our community. They kind of minimise what they see as masculinity. For me, masculinity is about what we've been talking about today. It's about strength. Mm. It's about resilience. It's about courage. It's about the willingness to be brave. So, so look well. at us two. We're the most look masculine. At, absolutely. <laughs> Do you ever see that? On Grinder and stuff, and you see all of us singing, thing, looking for masculine only, and I think, what, what, what on earth does I that know, mean? I know. How do you define masculine? Are you defined it by... How someone's body's defined? Are you defining it by how they speak? By and I just kind of think that there's a craziness in that because masculinity isn't just about the external stuff. And I think a lot of queer people have a lot more queer men, particularly, have a lot more masculinity than they realise, and that never gets celebrated. Ooh, I love it! Yeah. Right, Owen, we're going to have a little break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. I am Matt Kane, and today I am meeting Owen O'Kane. And Owen, we've been talking lots about shame, all your experiences of growing up gay and how you turned it around. I would love to talk now about how you have used your experiences to help others. So obviously we've talked about the psychotherapy, but what I'd love to discuss now is the psychotherapeutic books. Because you are a best-selling author. Your first book was a bestseller, 10 to Zen. It was the subject of a bidding war and then it was a huge success. So when did you, along your journey of wanting to help people, discovering psychotherapy, dealing with your own mental health, when did you realise you wanted to write books? It, it, to be honest, it happened by accident, if I'm being really honest. I was doing talks. I was doing a lot of talks, you know, in corporate 
you know, gigs and stuff. And I'd come up with this concept about taking 10 minutes out of your day for better mental well-being. And I was teaching that in corporate environments. And someone came up to me one day and said, you need to write that as a book. And I thought, that's a good idea. And I hadn't, you know how everyone says, oh, I, I wouldn't mind writing a book. I had a notion about writing a book, but it wasn't part of a strategic plan. I thought I was going to go private. I was going to do a lot more talks. I'd done years in the NHS. So I had a plan what I was going to do. In fact, I was going to step my career down a bit and take it a bit easier and pull back. And <laughs> little it, did you know. Little did I bloody know. It's gone <laughs> in the opposite. I've never been busier, actually. Um, so anyway, someone said to me, oh, meet my, I'm going to send you a, to a publish your friend of mine, send them an email, blah, 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 tell them who you are, tell them I put you in contact, sent them an email, and I didn't hear anything for about a year. And I completely forgot about it. And then about a year later, we were in the Cotswolds, my other half and I, and we were driving back, and then got this message and said, would you come in and pitch your book tomorrow? And I thought, I'd forgotten that that was even happening. So yeah. in, within 24 hours, I had to get a pitch together. Now, to be honest, the content I can talk about yeah. with my eyes closed, but I had to come up with a title and all sorts. And within 24 hours, 10 to Zen emerged. And I went in presented. They offered on the day, which was incredible. That is amazing. And then by a whole series of coincidences, my other half was working as a TV producer at the time. He was working with my now agent, on a project with a guy called Joe Wicks and they were doing a TV programme together and she coincidentally said, oh, what does your other half do? It was just small talk. He said, oh, he's a psychotherapist but he's just about to, to write a book and she said, oh, what's the book called? And he said, it's called 10 to Zen and she said, God, I'd love to meet him. Would Fucking hell, your agents had a good run with you and yeah. Joe Wicks. <laughs> so she then, I met Bev the next day. I genuinely didn't know who she was. Mark said to me, just go along and meet her. She knows a little bit about books. So I met her, had a coffee. Three hours later, we got on famously. She said, why don't I pitch your book out to other publishers? And then there were bids for the book. And the rest is history, really. Bev has been working with me for the last couple of years, and she's been brilliant. And for anyone listening who hasn't read one of your books yet, how would you describe them? I would say 10 to Zen is about learning to quieten your mind. 10 Times Happier is really exploring where we get in the way of our own happiness and not even realising we're doing it. And then the next book, How to Be Your Own Therapist, is really almost like a... It's, it's a crash course in therapy, really, for anyone who hasn't done therapy. It's a crash course in therapy. There, there are about 8 million people in the UK waiting for treatment <gasps> for therapy, according to The Guardian and some NHS providers. And I think everyone would benefit a therapist. I really believe that. Every human being would benefit therapy. And it really is a crash course in therapy and how you can integrate that into your life and how you can work on some of the things we have been talking about today. You know, how do you deal with unhelpful thinking? How do you deal with shame? How do you manage your anxiety? How do you level your mood out? So really, I'm really proud of this next book. I put heart and soul into it, but I think... For anybody struggling at any level, I think there is something in there for everyone. And do you, uh, you've talked about disclosure earlier, do you draw on your own experiences Absolutely. again in this book? You, you got too much. I mean, my argument is if you're going to throw yourself out onto a public platform and do what you do, you have to have the, the, you know, the courage to do it honestly and truthfully, otherwise you shouldn't do it. Okay, I've got another question for you. You mentioned your partner. I know you've been together for a long time. 24 years. 24 years, that's amazing. I can't even believe I'm saying that. I get a lump in my throat when I say that. <laughs> I was a commitment freak. When we met, I used to... I would oh, meet, really? Oh, my God, ridiculous. I would meet somebody after about two weeks and think, oh, I'm a bit overwhelmed. It's too much. I'm wrong. It's too intense. <laughs> so I was a proper commitment freak. But was that part of your shame? I think it was all a bit... Yeah, I think it was just easier not to be in a 
relationship yeah. and I just kind of found it easy and I said, oh no, no, it's too intense. I'm not, I don't think I'm cut out Well, for so this is the question I wanted to ask you. Um, allowing yourself to be loved is, and actually being in a position to be loved and being able to offer love, mm. that can only come, can't it, when you have worked on that primary relationship with yourself. Absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds like the biggest cliche in the world, but if you're not, if you're not at ease with yourself, then you're not going to be at ease with any of the relationships in your life because often we misinterpret, you know, our own stuff often in psychology we talk about transference and if we've got all this stuff going on and we don't like ourselves or we're feeling shame or whatever the context might be, often what we do is we transfer that out into other people. So you could, you know, we're friends, we're out in a bar, you could say something to me and I could completely misinterpret that. Now you have you haven't meant anything by what you've said, but because I haven't dealt with the internal yeah, stuff, I'm yeah. going to pro and I'm going to place that on you. So we just end up in conflict the whole time. So if you, you know, and that's why my argument is, you know, sort out your own stuff first, because when you do that, then you've got a much more stable platform for a relationship. And as well as your relationship, you mentioned moving to London. You've lived here for a long time. Yeah, God. How often do you go back to Belfast now? I go back. I mean, my dad and my brothers are still there, so I'm back probably four or five times a year. You know, I go back as regularly as I can do and just touch base. Well, you know what I'd love to know is there's been a lot of talk about how the Republic of Ireland has moved on in leaps and bounds, you know, the um, equal marriage referendum, all the rest of it. What, how does the situation in Northern Ireland compare? Because those of us outside Northern Ireland, um, we often get the impression that it is still kind of um, intensely religious and that's fraught with tension and it stops people from letting go of old prejudices. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it's, I was in Dublin last weekend doing some promotion stuff for the book and I was gobsmacked at how much um, Dublin has changed over the years Northern Ireland you know I think Northern Ireland is one of the best places in the world and it's got some of the most incredible people there they are the friendliest bunch you will meet and I don't say that because I'm from there but they're a really lovely bunch of people I just think you've still got a small minority who are just caught in quite you know traditional extreme views about what's right and what's wrong and I think that's changing but it's just got a little bit of catching up to do but you think it will get there? They, they are getting there. I think there's a dominant militant militant community there who are pushing back hard. But you've also got an extreme group, uh, particularly, uh, you know, I'm Catholic, but I think some of the strong unionist views on sexuality are very, very strong. And I think they're damaging and they're shaming. Mm. And I always speak out against the fact that, you know, people can hold religious views and that's fine. But if you decide to shame and hurt another human yeah. being, that's not forgivable. Okay, right. That's the future for Northern Ireland. My last question go. for you, what is the future for you, Owen O'Kane? It's a really good question. I, do you know, I, I had had this thought the other day, actually, because the next book comes out and that'll be three. I mean, I did one. I thought if I do a book, that'll be good. I didn't plan to do three. And, you know, will I do another book? That's... That's a I have an idea for the next book, Ooh. which is really exciting. Really, very excited. Actually, I'm surprised that you know it's incredible, isn't it? Once you start doing this creative stuff, you think, God, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah I've got yeah, another yeah. idea for the next book. I'm doing a lot of talks at the moment, which I love. I really do enjoy doing the talks. Um, I still got my clinical practice. I'll never give that up because that's the heart and soul of the work. I want to keep that going. So you know, the honest answer is, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I try not to overthink. The older I get, I just kind of think, you know, I love my work. I'm very privileged that I get the platform that I do to do my job. So I'm just going to keep turning up, doing what I'm doing, 
do it to the best of my ability and as cliched as it might sound I'm just going to trust the process and whatever is meant to be next will you know, I, you know I'm not one of these people that believes oh you know manifesting it will happen I yeah. think you have to work and you have to show up and you have to do what you do and do it well but I'm getting much better at letting go and kind of thinking well, I'm not entirely sure what's coming next but I'm just going to trust it whatever it is it's the right thing well, Owen, whatever it is, whatever comes next, I will look forward oh, to it all. You. Thank you, Matt. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. Right, that's about it for this week. Thanks very much to my guest, Owen O'Kane. Drop me a line on social media if you've enjoyed the show or you have something you want to say. We're on at Virgin Radio UK and I am on at Matt Kane Writer. And please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. Matt Kane Meets will be back next week. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, celebrating every colour of the rainbow.